Well, good morning again. Hey, if you have your Bibles, let's get right into it. We don't have time this morning for a sarcastic or awkward or weird comment that I normally open up with. We got too much to cover today. So if you have a Bible, Matthew 8. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can grab one out of the seat back. Or remember, you can go to myamcc.info and you can, you can follow along. All the text is right there. You can make notes. myamcc.info. Man, we got so much to get to today. Before we do, a little reminder. Now, this may be exhausting to some of you because it's been two and a half years since we've been in the book of Matthew. And if you're new here, you're going, two and a half years, we're eight chapters in. Yeah, yeah, that's just, that's the way it is. So, that's it. Matthew 8, um, here's an important, and it's so important for us to remember this today. This will change the way we understand the text we're looking at. It's central to us understanding what's going on in this text. Okay, we've been saying this for two and a half years. You remember this? Matthew is a, okay, okay, you guys are the 11 o'clock. You guys slept in. I saw you guys getting coffee. Okay, here we go. Let's try this again. Matthew is a Jew. Oh, nice. Okay, here we go. I'm going to ask you another question. Here, here's the trick. It's a different question, same answer. Okay, you ready? And Matthew's writing to a bunch of Oh, not quite as emphatic as the first time around, but we'll get there. We'll be okay. It's so important. You have to remember, this is going to change the way we understand this text. There are things that are layered inside because Matthew is a man writing the Holy Scriptures who's writing to a group of people who are all wrapped up in culture and language. And for us to understand the beauty and the complexity and the depth of what Jesus is calling us to, we cannot forget that Matthew is a Jew writing to a bunch of... Oh, okay, okay. I think you guys are going to get this at the end of the day. Two and a half years in, we're going to figure this out. Here we go. Okay, so you got your Bibles? Matthew 8, verse 28 is where we're going to be. He says this. And we, when he, being Jesus, came to the other side. Let's pause right there. Now some of you know why we're in the book two and a half years in and we're in chapter 8. When he, being Jesus, came to the other side. It's a little, it's an odd phrase. Remember, Matthew's a Jew writing to a bunch of Jews. It's a unique phrase. In fact, that phrase in the Greek, that he came to the other side, is only used... In the book of Matthew, it's an awkward phrase. It's an uncomfortable phrase. It, it, it's, um, well, you know when you listen to someone talk from Texas, right? And you're like, you're not using words. Like, that's not how real people talk, okay? Um, I was in Texas one time, and this lady said, um, she said, you're not from around here, are you? That sounded more like Alabama, which I've been there as well. I said, no, why? And she said, because you said overcast. I'm like, that's a word in English. <laughs> in fact, it's on the news in Oregon every day. Like, that's our weather prediction. It's going to be overcast today and overcast tomorrow. And on Thursday, we're going to get seven feet of snow. And then it's going to be overcast. It's this weird phrase. It's an uncomfortable and awkward phrase in the Greek 
But Matthew's the only one that uses it, and it's important because Matthew is the only one who uses it, and he only uses it certain times. It's like the, the, the good news of the gospel is in this one little, these, these seven little words right here, right at the beginning of Matthew 8, verse 28. And when he came to the other side, you know why? Because the only time Matthew uses that word is when he's saying that he left the region of the Jews, of God's people, of the kingdom of God, of the people who claim to know and worship the one true God. And he leaves that place and he goes to the people who don't know him. He came to the other side. That's, that's, that's the gospel contained in like these, these eight, nine little words that he came to the other side. That's the good news of why we celebrate that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were busted and broken, he came to the other side. It's a statement. Matthew's making a theological statement. It's not a geographical statement. There are plenty of other times where, where Jesus crosses over something. He goes across a river. He goes across the lake. He goes across the body of the water. And every single time, Matthew uses a different phrase. But when he leaves the people of God to go to those who do not know him, he uses this phrase. Matthew's already trying to tell us something beautiful and powerful and significant even in his first phrase. It goes on, it says this. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. So maybe you've been around church, you've heard this story, maybe you've got no clue about this story, but we're going to see a story about, according to Matthew, two men who were possessed by demons, okay, and what you think about that whole thing is a totally different conversation we can have another time, but this is what Matthew's reporting to the people that Matthew's writing to, that there's two men possessed by demons, and, and that they're so violent, uh, Mark and Luke tell us that they break chains, that nobody can go that way, that they're violent, and they, they've shut down this road because of the violence and the power and the darkness that consumes them. And Jesus is going to come, and as you would imagine, Jesus is going to exercise the demons. He's going to cast out the demons out of them. And that's what's going on in our story. But there's something more beautiful and more powerful. You see, um, you remember, Matthew is a Jew writing to a bunch of Jews. Oh, see, I'm telling you guys, you guys are going to nail this. You're going to remember that, okay? Matthew's Jew. Um, Jews historically, before Jesus, I mean, even in Jesus' day, but the, the, the language of the Jews is the language we call Hebrew. Now, Hebrew is, is an odd language. It's, it's a very ancient language, so it hasn't developed a lot of things. It hadn't developed a lot of things that modern languages had, like punctuation. They didn't have punctuation. Ancient Hebrew writing had no punctuation because it was almost completely an oral language that happened to be written down sometimes. It also, by the way, didn't have vowels, so imagine trying to write a paragraph without vowels or punctuation. It's a mess, right? Because the Hebrew language was actually just intended to be kind of markers so they could jog your memory and you'd remember what you'd memorized, what you'd heard over and over and over again. But without punctuation, there were certain linguistic things. And I know we're kind of getting like deep here in the ancient Near Eastern language, but walk with me. This is really important, okay? Um, th there are certain things that you have to do when you don't have punctuation to identify the change of pace or energy or focus. So like, like for example, you've seen this, right? Jesus will say this. He'll say, truly, truly, I say to you. Right? You ever wondered why he had to say it twice? 
Why, why couldn't Jesus just say, truly I say to you? Or why, I mean, it's Jesus. Why couldn't he just say, I say to you? I am God, the creator of all things. I say to you, right? Why do you have to say truly, truly? Well, because in Hebrew, one of the linguistic tools that they would use to emphasize something, to put a punctuation mark on something, was to repeat it. Almost every single time when you read the Old Testament, if you come across a verse and there is an exclamation point, it's because in the Hebrew, something about that sentence was repeated. It's, it's a way of yelling it, right? And we're going to come to, in, in Matthew's recording here, which is recorded in Greek, we're going to come to a Hebrew carryover of a ling linguistic tool that we don't see in English. In fact, some of your translations don't even translate the word. They just translate into punctuation what's trying to be said, what Matthew's trying to say. So today, normally I use a version, if you're into it, normally I use a version called New American Standard. Today we're going to use ESV because it actually translates the word so you can see it in the text right there. Okay? There's this word, and it's used three times. The word is idu. Okay? Idu. So we're going to all say this word together. Idu is what we're going to say. Okay? Okay, you ready? Here we go. One, Two, uh, wait a second, okay. Uh, we're, okay, I don't want you to mess this up. Okay, we're going to go one, two, three, and then on the beat that would be four, we're all going to say a do. Okay, can we do that? Okay, I don't want you to be like one, two, a do, and jumping on the three, and then you throw us all off, and you look like a fool, and it's all awkward in here because you messed it up. Okay, can we do that? You ready? Okay. I'll even point at you when it's your turn. You ready? Here we go. One, two, three, a do. Ah, oh, nailed it. Nailed it. The phrase in Greek, actually, every time it comes out, it says kaiadu, which means and idu, right? And you might be wondering, what's idu mean? Well, the word idu, translated literally, just means this. I love this. It means this. Look! It's probably what you yell at your kids every time they're in a parking lot or walking across the street, right? Look! Did you not see the semi? Look! No, just me? Just my kids? Look! Look. It's a way in Hebrew for the writer to say, don't miss this. See this. In, in the ESV, in some of the translations, it translates the word, behold. And it's this idea, see it. Don't miss this moment. Something really important is going to happen. Here's the crazy thing about the story that we would so easily pass over. In this story, six verses, the word do is used in a higher concentration than anywhere else in the Bible. Matthew uses this word do. Look, don't miss this. Three times. Three times in six verses. It's easy to look at the story of Jesus casting out demon and go, oh, okay, cool. Jews cast out demon. But Matthew, a Jew writing to a bunch of Jews, is trying to say something so profound, but he's afraid they're going to miss it. So this morning, as we work through, and we're just going to look at the three spots that Matthew yells, look! Remember that there's something so profound and challenging and painful in this moment, but it could be so easy for us to miss it. So if you have your Bibles... Verse 29, verse 29, it says this. Kayadu! Oh, I forgot to read you the quote. Um, it says this, from the Dictionary of Biblical Languages with Semantic Domains. It's the kind of stuff I read in my free time. So there'll be a quiz for you later. It says this, when we're talking about the word adu, it says that it could be translated as 
Look! Suddenly! There's an exclamation point after everyone, so I'm trying to get you to feel the... I did English teacher said, anytime, don't put an exclamation point unless you're yet willing to yell it. And so I just put exclamation points at the end of everything I say, because that's how I talk. Suddenly! Now! And it says this, a marker used to liven up Hebrew-style narrative to change a scene, to emphasize an idea, to call attention to a detail. And verse 29 begins this way. Kaidu! And behold, they cried out. What have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Matthew tells us two demon-possessed men. It tells us in Mark and Luke in other spots that it tells us more about this experience. And it says that at one point they're asked about their name and they say this. They say our name is Legion for we are many. A legion was about 6,000 Roman soldiers. So at least when you compile Mark and Luke and Matthew's story together, we're to expect that these two men are possessed by about 6,000 demons. And Matthew wants us to not miss something. Now, one of the things he might not want us to miss is look up at verse 27. Verse 27, it says this, Jesus has just calmed the waves, the storm. And it says this in verse 27, you remember we talked about last week, and the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him, what kind of man is this? And two verses later, Matthew says, look, and the demons proclaim. What do you want with us, son of God? What kind of man is this, son of God? What kind of man is this that 6,000 demons cower? Something else I think Matthew wants you to notice. Do you see there's no, like, there's no contention. There's no argument. There's no fighting it out. There's no like wrestling match. They don't like come and like arm wrestle Jesus to see who's going to be stronger. He, they just show, Jesus shows up and in the face of 6,000 demons, one son of God conquers. In the face of 6,000 men who, who were so violent and so dark and so broken that they'd obstructed pathways and they'd broken chains and they'd prevented anybody from passing who are consumed with so much darkness, the presence of one son of God. And they cower. I think sometimes in the desire to connect and have meaningful relationship with our Savior. And, and to try and understand when it talks about that he's like us in all ways, that he's like us, that he understands us, that he, that he walks with us, that he's near to us. To have a meaningful personal relationship, I think sometimes we lose the power and the sovereignty and the might of this Jesus. 6,000 demons cower in his presence. There's no question, there's no argument. The God we worship is a God that no matter the depths of the darkness in your soul or in the world around you, that at the single presence of him, all the darkness is cast out. That there is no darkness too great that one son of God might not banish it from all the earth. 
that's the son of that's the god that we worship that's the god that we that's the god that, that's why we have hope because we believe we believe that there is no darkness that cannot be overcome by the might and the power and the presence of our god 6000 I think there's something else that Matthew wants us to see. If we continue on, it says this. And behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, herd of many pigs, it tells us in Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke, that, uh, sorry, Mark and Luke, that it's about um, 2,000 is uh, the number it gives us. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged you see their posture? In fact, that word there in Greek is actually most commonly used of, of the cries of a woman giving birth. The cries of pain. They cry out in pain and fear and anguish. They beg him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, look at this, don't miss this. Go. That's it. That's it. With a single word, he cast out 6,000 demons. Man, with a word. There's no, there's no like dance or, or special phrase or mixing up a potion or, or any. With a word. We serve a God who has such might that with a word, all of creation obeys him. You remember just a little bit before, earlier in the chapter, there's a Roman centurion, a Roman general leader guy, and he comes and he's asking Jesus to heal his servant, and he pleads with him to, to heal his servant, and, and Jesus agrees, and he says he's going to go to his house, and he says, no, 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 I'm not worthy that you would come to my house, but I'm a man um, under, uh, with authority, and I know how things work, and all you have to say is a word. There is no depths of brokenness, darkness, or evil in your life that cannot be overcome at the word of our Savior. Scripture tells us that it was the words of our God who spoke all things into existence, that he holds all things together, that it wasn't a straining or wrestling or muscling or fighting, but with a word, let there be light. And Genesis says there was light. That's simple. This is the might of the Savior that we draw near to. This is the might of the Son of God who died in our place. Matthew does not want us to miss this, that he is not only the God who calms the wind and the seas, but even the depths of hell cower and obey at his very word. Verse 32. Let's read it again. He says this, and he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Do you see it there? So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, Kayadu, 
The whole herd rushed into the steep bank, into the sea. Matthew is wanting us to not miss this. Something's happening in this moment. He wants us to ask some questions about what's going on in this moment. He wants us to see the power of God and, I believe, the depths of darkness of evil. Just for clarity, so we're all on the same page, let's make sure we all understand this. Um, uh, Did Jesus cast the pigs into the sea? No. No, Jesus cast the demons into the pigs, and then the demons took and ran the pigs into the sea. 2,000 of them. It's hard for us to fathom the, the, the um, wickedness of this moment. It's hard for us to fathom the destruction of this moment. 2,000 pigs. We're going to hear later, the herdsmen, they're going to run into town. They're going to tell them everything about it, and the town people are going to come out. Because there were this group of people that were caring for these 2,000 pigs. If you've ever had one pig, you can imagine what an affair it is to care for 2,000 pigs. Right? Now, most historians tell us that more than likely what we see here happening in this place is that the town itself, which was probably like three or four families that had just grown up and grown up and grown up, that, that probably there was probably 1,000 or 2,000 people that lived in this nearby town, and, and the, the, the families were probably pig herders. And collectively, as families, as a whole community, they kind of had this co-op of pig raising, Right? That, that they all partnered together, that, that they would um, send their sons out to go work with the pigs for a period of time, and they'd all kind of invest, and then when they would sell off the pigs, all of the co-op, all of the city, would um, receive the benefits of managing this whole herd. And so when the demons go into the pigs, they destroy the whole livelihood. Think of the wealth of these city people that is lost in these 2,000 pigs running into the sea to die. Look, don't miss it. The depths of darkness are further than you can imagine. It, It makes us ask some questions, though, too. Like, if Jesus knows everything, if Jesus is sovereign over all and and knows everything that's going to happen, and, and, and has seen, and is present, and eternal, and all these kind of words we could use to talk about God's character. Um, wh- why? Why did he let the demons go into the pigs? Th- there's some theories. Um, w- one of them is, I, I don't think it really holds any water, but some people suggest, well, demons have to inhabit something. And they like to inhabit animate objects, and so they have to inhabit something. And so if Jesus is going to cast them out, that he has to put them into something else, which um, doesn't seem to line up with (laughs) anything else that we see in the Bible. So it just doesn't seem like a good story, reason. There's another... uh, uh, idea that Jesus, that Matthew being a Jew, writing to a bunch of Jews, he, he's using this as a symbol and illustration of um, Jesus kicking out and overthrowing Roman oppressors. Because for Jews, the Romans were identified by their love and devotion and, and, and eating of pigs. And, and um, that there's a legion, right? That's a Roman soldier number. And that Jesus is going to kick out and destroy and, and run into the sea, which was one of the prophetic hopes of, of the Hebrew people, was that God would push the Romans into the sea. 
but there's really no other biblical support for it. There's, there's this really cool thing in Isaiah 65. We don't have time to go there, but there's a really cool thing in Isaiah 65 where it actually tells us prophecy about the Messiah will come and he will go to a people from a far off land who've rejected him and wanted nothing of him and who live amongst the tombs and eat and consume pigs and who their blood is stained by the pigs who sacrifice them to idols. Does that sound familiar? Like maybe something that we just saw here, that he will go to them, but they will reject him. Which is maybe what we so maybe it's a, just a fulfillment of prophecy, but I, I think Matthew's wanting us to see something because there's actually something incredibly graceful and merciful that happens in this moment. We have to see it in light of the last phrase. It says this, verse 33. The herdsmen fled, which is a funny phrase to say, just terrified. Like there are 2,000 pigs just up and ran all in the same direction into the sea. And going into the city, they told everything. That's an important thing to remember. They told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. It says this in verse 34. And behold, Kaidu. All the city came out to, Jesus, to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the same word that the demons use, pleading with Jesus to be cast into the pigs, that they begged him, they pleaded with him to leave. Kaidu, see this. One theologian wrote it this way. He says that what Matthew wants us to see is a people who valued pigs over people and commerce over the Christ. You see, the point of the story, one of the great points of the story is to see God's incredible mercy that he would expose to them their idolatry. That they loved their 2,000 pigs and the wealth and the comfort that it produced over their two brothers who were consumed with darkness and brokenness, that they would have rather them live in the tombs than them be inconvenienced at the cost of sacrifice. Jesus is mercifully, gracefully trying to expose the crookedness of their own hearts. See, there's another story Jesus tells well, the, the Bible tells about Jesus, and he says this rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And uh, when you kind of compile it all together, this rich young ruler comes, and he asks Jesus about what he needs to do to inherit eternal life, and he, Jesus lists off these things, and he says, oh, I do all these things. I do all those rules. And, and, and he, Jesus says, uh, in one, I think it's in Luke. I really love it. It's, it's awesome. He, he says this. He says, he says something to the effect of, you're so close to the kingdom, but one thing you lack Go and sell everything and come follow me. Now, if you've heard this before, it, it's fair to say, it's important to say that Jesus isn't concerned with the man's wealth. He's concerned with the position of the man's wealth in his life because it says in almost every version of the story, it says that the, the young man went away sad for he was very wealthy. You see, what Jesus does in that moment is he positions the man's wealth against him and he exposes his idolatry in his own heart that he loves his stuff more than his Savior. That, 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 that the people of these cities love their pigs more than they love people. And I think the culmination of what Matthew's wanting us to see is, is what are your pigs? What is it in your life that you love 
more than people? What is it in your life that you love more than your Savior? What is it in your life that if it was to run into a sea and be destroyed, you would weep and mourn even if that destruction brought life to dozens of people, brought grace and mercy, brought you nearer to the Savior? What is it? What is it in your life that you love more than Jesus? J.I. Packer, who's a great theologian, he has this great quote I really loved. He says this, And still he, being Jesus, seeks the fellowship of his people and will send them both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach them to himself. See, what Jesus, in his great mercy and kindness, is exposing to them is their idolatry. I know, I know that myself included, that we are people of idolatrous hearts that it is so easy to buy our affections and our devotion, that our hearts so quickly wander from him. So my question to you this morning is, what is it? What is it that you love more than Jesus? Because I believe that as a great and merciful God, that he will allow those things to run into the sea so that you might find joy in him. The story is kind of a bummer ending in the book of Matthew because it just says that they come and they plead with and believe that these guys, we don't know anything else. Matthew doesn't tell us anything else about these two guys. Just that they get freed from this oppression and, and, and then the family comes out, the community comes out and they plead with them to leave, to go away. And we imply by the rest of the story that Jesus complies and he leaves and it's all that we know. But Mark gives us a little bit extra of the story. Mark tells us this in Mark 5, verse 8, it says this. As he, being Jesus, was getting into the boat. This is after they've come out and they pled with him, please go away. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him, that's the same word again, that he might be with him. He pleaded with Jesus, let me go with you, let me be near you. It says this in verse 19. And he, being Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This morning, if you've experienced the mercy of God, if he has freed you and given you life and, and freedom and joy and peace, I think the words Jesus would say to you today would be, go home. Go home and go tell them. Go tell them about the way that God has loved you and the mercy that he's shown you. You see, uh, you may not see it just in this, these passages, but there's something really incredibly powerful, amazing that happens in the story when we connect all the pieces. You see, Jesus crosses over. He goes to the other side. He, this region is called the Decapolis, okay, because there's 10 cities, and, and this country was one of them. He goes to the Decapolis, and, and he casts out the demons, and he casts the demons into the pigs, and the pigs run into the sea, and he gets rejected and, and run away, and he gets told to leave, and that they don't want him to come anymore to be a part of their life, and he leaves. He gets on the boat. He goes back to the Jerusalem, goes back to Israel. But, but later, he returns. Later, he returns. And his return is marked by this story. You've heard of the story of the feeding of 5,000, have you not? You heard the story of the feeding of 5,000. But Jesus' return to the Decapolis is marked by this. It's a story called the feeding of the 4,000. 
You see, it's a testimony and the words of the oppressed men. Jesus returns to a place he'd been rejected to find a crowd of 4,000 men alone waiting for him. Go home. Go home and tell of the mercies and the grace and the kindness of God. And maybe, just maybe, God would be so kind and merciful that when the day comes that he does return, that he does return to his own, that maybe, just maybe, because of the faithfulness of your testimony, there would be a crowd of 4,000 people standing on the beach waiting 